Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 21 with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. I almost said HRV Homes. You want to join the team? Hey. So we don't have anyone else joining us today. And today we're joined by... <laughs> Nobody. Ourselves. Yeah. So Don't turn this off right away. We're going to talk about some very interesting topics. Dan just got back from Tahoe. Yeah. I'm going tomorrow for a bachelor party. It's probably going to be very different than my trip. You were there with five women and your wife? No. no. My, no. <laughs> <laughs> so six women, five women, and myself and another husband of one of the women that was there. And you guys just took a pontoon boat out on, on Lake Tahoe and killed it? Yeah, we were. We Drank did a bunch eight of white hours, claws. white claws, gin and tonics. Let's just say me and the other guy definitely drank for the five women that were with us. So I purchased a bunch of things. I'm kind of the elder statesman going to this bachelor party. So I sent ahead of time um, a bunch of things to my future brother-in-law's father who lives out there. So I sent oh, out you shipped stuff out. a spike ball set, uh, a shambong, and a beer funnel, a couple other things. And Paul, his father, keeps sending me pictures of the Amazon packages. As Does he open them? Oh yeah. He's like, can I christen this? Like, yes. That's great. Please. What was the How second many, thing? The sham what? Shambong. Shambong. Kind of like a shamwow. You got to look that up. How many dudes are going? Oh my God. It's like a roster of 15. Whoa. Yeah. That's a big crew. I know. It's going to be very different than what my trip was. <laughs> <laughs> and you're spending the first night in Reno? Yeah. At some CD hotel where they offered me an upgrade. It was an extra 30 bucks to have a guaranteed non-smoking room. That's when I Jeez. knew it was a good establishment. And no bed bugs. No bed bugs. <laughs> so what are, what are we talking about today? <sighs> Start with a quick talk on um, contingent deals. Zoning contingencies. Okay. Yeah, I feel like we've hit this a couple of times. We've had attorney on, but... And I think a lot of our guests talk about entitling stuff and... I hate going after a deal and putting time and effort into it to find out that the successful bidder on it was someone, some idiot who just threw caution to the wind and took it, no contingencies, all cash, and is making a huge bet on those, on those variances yeah, and those approvals. That happens a lot now, though. I know. Don't you feel it's happening a lot? If we as a development community, if I could use that phrase, could agree and collude on one thing, to me, it's let's all insist on zoning contingencies with our offers if the deal relies on, relies on variances. It's just too much risk. I think the bigger the deal, the more often you're going to see a contingency. Giant, you know, in Southie here, we've seen a lot of gas stations disappear. I think there's only one left and Everyone that gets bought up gets turned into a big development, and, and those need to take contingencies. Same with any development over a certain number of units. I don't know what the magic number is, but yeah, but even I, even two, you do two units, two three units with contingencies. Yeah. Like, I yeah, mean, but you see people. To Mark's point, you see people buying them all the time. No contingency. If it works without the contingencies, and if it works without the variances, then God bless you. You take it, and we all know that deal can work. And if you get the variances, then it's just a grand slam. So you've been burned. You had a deal that you were con- contemplating and they liked the no contingent one. Yes. I mean, that's 100%. okay. It happened that's to us too. It's happened yeah. to us. Dan, I think you had a guy that was like playing the drums for you one time and then sold to somebody else I for offered over $100,000. Almost $200,000 more I offered him with a contingency and he wouldn't take it. All right. So let's talk about the mechanics of it. Okay. First thing to me is that when you offer a seller a offer with a zoning contingency, you are asking them to go along for the ride. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so you need to build a level of trust and confidence that, you know, this roller coaster is well built and is going to get, you know, all the way back to where you started. And you're not just taking this thing out for a spin uh, and, and going to return it back. You, you're, you're for real. Yeah, you need to show them that you have a track record, that you have the right team in place. And we try to, when I'm talking with sellers, that's what I I always try to talk to them about. I say, listen, we never try to overdevelop. We have a team in place. We have an attorney who's familiar with the neighborhood, who's familiar with the process. We've been through it, you know, a number of times. Right. You know, we understand what realistically can be built on this lot. For that reason, I love a meeting with the seller. Perhaps there's brokers involved, but if possible, I'd like the opportunity to present my offer in person. So I'll meet them at their house where the brokers can come and I'll present and go over some of my qualifications and experiences to show that this isn't my first rodeo. If I have a massing done by an architect, that's even better. I like to bring just a quick sketch of what the proposed building will look like and just show this is in keeping with what's on the block now. This isn't some monstrosity that will get laughed out of the first community meeting. Well, it also shows that you care and you've already done due diligence ahead of time before mm-hmm. you even go and meet with them. Right. And there's let's break it down. There's probably two types of sellers. There's the ones that are receptive to a presentation such as that. There's also sellers that they don't care. Just like the drummer guy, they just don't care. That Maybe they don't want the neighbors to know. They want some privacy. I mean, I think there's a reason why sometimes they do sell without the contingency. They, yeah. In some neighborhoods, they don't want to be known as the one that sold out to a developer. But unfortunately, unless you're going to donate it to like a nonprofit or you're going to give it away to, a, you know, let a, a, an next of kin take it, I don't know how else you dispose of it. So I think there's some of that, but I also think that there is, it's a gamble that the seller is taking. And this is the gamble to put it out in words. A, if you take my zoning contingent offer, you have the chance of making the most money. If you want the cash deal, it will be some middle ground. However, if you go along with the zoning contingency and for whatever reason, it doesn't go through, now the price of your property is probably worth less than the cash as is offered today without ever having even started down the path of a a zoning variance. Mm -hmm. Have you ever structured your contingencies based on the number of units you get approved? Yes. So a sliding scale along with the offer is helpful. I think it sets expectations ahead of time, which is helpful. And that's not too confusing because that's always our concern is are we maybe it's a presentation thing that we I just I say if you're to- getting above four, th- you know, four units or whatever, then it, it might be worth it. But for three, two or three units, probably not. Well, it's interesting. So a sophisticated seller might, their, their lawyer might say, you need an unjust enrichment clause in this, whereby if the buyer achieves this incredible density, far more than was assumed in the variance, you get to keep participating in the upside. Um, so sometimes you'll you'll see things like that, but it helps to have a price for for the downside if you get beaten down and the project is smaller than initially conceived. But then again, you could scare away the seller at the outset by saying, "Look, we could be giving you X, but if it, we start going along and we find a lot of resistance and we end up with this small project, then you're only going to be able we're only going to be able to pay you Y." They might then say, "Not interested." I yeah. feel that though with the way this at least the way Boston has been over the last three or four years, a lot of sellers now understand how intense the 
entitlement process is in the city. And because a lot of times they've participated in the process from their, whether it's their neighbors or whatnot. So, I, you know, in that respect, I feel that a lot of times sell, more and more sellers these days actually get it than not. Do you feel that? It helps. If they get it, it helps. And if they've lived there for a long time and can come to the meetings and explain to their neighbors who they're close with, hey, this is my retirement. If you oppose Dan and Ray, you are in fact destroying my chances of uh, you know moving to Florida. We've gotten the sellers on board yeah. with trying to help us push mm-hmm. things through before just because they've been connected to the neighborhood for so long. So let's talk about the levers that you can pull when you're executing a zoning contingency. One obvious one is just a non-refundable deposit. We'll call it risk capital. And you're saying that I'm so confident in this offer and, and our prospects here that I'm going to put a chunk of change on the table, which is yours. It'll be, uh, you know, regardless of if we're successful or not. I also think that's more so a um, like paying for their time. Yeah. You know, you're taking away the property. There's no guarantees. You know, there's strong feelings and strong assumptions in terms of what's been done before. And like Dan said, not building, you know, a skyscraper in a small residential neighborhood. So building appropriately. But I, I feel like it's also just, hey, you know, we're tying up your property and this, you, you should get compensated for that because you're taking it off the market. I personally prefer this approach. A couple months to you for free. So four to five months, I get the property. I get to feel it out. I'm going to keep my foot on the gas because four to five months isn't that long. After such time, I will pay in at a cost of X dollars per month. Maybe it's $2,000, maybe it's $3,000 per month. But at that point, you should have some semblance of as to whether this thing is feasible or not. And you can make a decision at that point to pay non-refundable deposits to continue the thing moving forward. And with each successive month, that amount can go up if if you want to structure it that way. We've actually never never done that. No, we have. The one over on uh, Springer. Well, no, we renegotiated. We well, ne- we had to extend a couple of times just because right. the process but was we didn't taking build longer. It, we didn't build it in at the onset. So, yeah. No. But to go back to where we started. To but me, we felt confident about the deal and we just needed to tweak it and, and you know, listen. We need a couple more months. Yeah, we need a few so, more months so to make it work. sweeten the pot. To me, it's not just a standard form offer to purchase where in, whereby in the firm remarks you write, this offer is contingent upon zoning relief, blah, blah, blah. No, you know, Asterisk, firm remark, see attached rider, spell it out, have a cover page, include a portfolio of your projects behind it, a little Excel graph showing the timeline, an expected timeline for approvals really helps. All of these things sort of, you know, help clarify what is an otherwise very foreign process to someone who's, who's selling their, this major asset. I think Ray mentioned it. Have you ever come across issues presenting all of that and overwhelming the seller. I try to break it down as much as I can. I, I, I've been pretty successful where I've gotten all the way to a meeting with the seller. Because we've dealt with some sellers that like, even just get, showing them the offer to purchase blows their mind. And so, you know, having all this additional stuff along with it may just and that's where a seller needs good representation. That's why sometimes direct to seller can almost be more difficult. Yeah, a lot of times. If they have a broker who's very familiar with the city and knows how things work, they can explain it or his own, uh, an attorney who does a lot of business here. What is your time frame, Mark, with respect to how long do you give yourself? You said 
three or four weeks or was it months? To me, within four to five months, four I have months. a very good indication. I'm not, I'm probably have a, a ZBA date already set up and I know with a strong sense, with a strong likelihood of if I'll be successful or not. And now After while the, you're under agreement and while you're in the contingency, what are you doing? You, you mentioned, I think in the past that you've gone out kind of kiss babies, shake hands, that sort of thing. Meet the neighbors. Yeah. I mean, it's like Ted talked about last episode. A lot of our work is done door to door. I'm recently, I started making, I find people get a little bit perturbed and I would too. Someone just knocks on your door at dinner time. You know, I'd rather come at their schedule. So what I've done is I've made these little custom door knockers with a little blurb about the project, a couple bullet points and my phone number. I just leave it there. It's a hundred bucks from Kinko's and I'll get a phone call and say, yeah, when's convenient for you? I'll make my schedule work for yours. Where's there a Kinko's around here? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) So you leave a door hanger and it's way more um, inviting. Right. It's way more inviting than the, um, because in Boston, what you, the the normal process is you bring it through to ISD, you get rejected, then you set up your ZBA date. You may or may not have to meet with the community before that. You just talked really fast. Sorry. Do we want to slow that down? Yeah, we should. You packed a lot into that. Hold on. I'm going to get to where I'm going here. So. Then when you actually have that community meeting, that abutters meeting, you're flyering everybody within a 300 foot radius. So instead of waiting till that point where the white piece of paper shows up right. on a door, you're doing door tags and and reaching out a little more proactively to try and get I, a handle on things, I which I think, I think could be a good idea. Yeah. It may also, I personally feel like maybe it, does it kind of rally the troops against you? Or is it just something where if they're going to rally against me, better find out now rather than after I've spent a lot of money and time going to that white piece of paper phase. So I, I agree that there it's debatable. I can see both sides. However, I'm of the opinion that if, if you're sure, sometimes you, you know, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your neighbors. It's tough. If, if, if you have a really difficult group of neighbors who don't want to see anything change with that property, like it for whatever reason, you're going to find out. To me, if I have a zoning contingency and I'm going to start paying into it at month five, I'd kind of rather find out a couple weeks into it. So, yeah. I mean, they're going to see the flyer if, if they are the type. So, so cut, maybe we can back up. Yeah, we up. can back up now. <laughs> yeah, let's back let's up. Back up. What, what, so, for the first thing I think we should say is if I'm going to be getting something under agreement with a zoning contingency, how much other, in addition to potentially a couple grand a month after four or five months, how much do you typically spend on attorneys and architects during that phase? Do you guys want to go through some real numbers on a real deal that uh, I just finished, I just sold? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I picked up a property in East Boston. This was a single family house on the MLS. The house had a driveway and two parking spots at the rear. It was a weird, uh, it was a garage to another house where at some point, sometime, someone added a second level onto it, put two bedrooms up there and converted the first floor, which was literally a garage, into the living room, dining room, kitchen. Bizarre looking house. But I thought, you know, if I had to rent this thing, I could. And the seller wanted like $550 for it. I offer, it sat on the market, it sat on the market. I offered them at 525 with a zoning contingency. They said, the seller owns a number of taxi cab medallions. I talked about this briefly last episode. Mm. He's underwater and about to get foreclosed on. Would you just take it for 450? 
said, sure, look, 450, I could rent this thing. It'll work either way. I don't need the contingency. So we went down the road. I held the property for seven months. That's between the time that I closed on it and I sold it. I sold this deal. Did you rent it? I never rented it. I thought about filling the building with tenants during the hold period just to defray some costs. But my feeling ultimately was that those are kind of like peanuts relative to the whole deal. And it has the potential to put people in that building has the potential to screw everything up in the bigger picture. And if my goal was to dispose of the property quickly, permanent and get rid of it, then I didn't want to introduce that variable, which I couldn't control. So you permitted it in seven months. I permitted it. I had the plans completely approved. I didn't just deliver. A lot of times plans are, buildings are delivered with a ZBA approval, but not a city of Boston building permit. That's a different burden. I delivered this with a building permit. So through How'd ZBA you get it done and so through quickly in seven months, there was no opposition to this. The new building matched the height of everything on the block. It had two parking spaces for three units. It fit right in. It was a slam dunk. And for that reason, I had one a Butters meeting, one community meeting, and uh, just got straight through. Jeez, I think that might be the a, a world record. It was nice. Yeah, I mean to get, get the surveyor, <laughs> architect, the attorneys, uh, the community meetings. Did you already have your plans ready to submit when you closed on the property? Basically, as soon as we were, as soon as I had a PNS signed, I had the architect start with a turndown set, which is sort of an abbreviated set of drawings that just provides the building department enough information to analyze the zoning concerns. Um, it doesn't necessarily show every handrail and the height of a, of a railing, but it'll show your setbacks. It shows the height of the building, floor plans, a roof plan, and an elevation of each side. So, did you? Did you, are you doing the project or did you flip it? So I ended up selling the deal. Okay. Why? Essentially, my thought process on it was that I'm trying to focus right now on larger deals. The three-family, two-family variety, to me, there are certain fixed costs in terms of your time, and they don't change that much, whether you're doing three units, seven units, or nine units. It's, you know, within reason, it's the same number of trips to the building department, the same number of inspections, same number of bank draws. Um, so... This one, if we go through the numbers again, so I actually bought it for four fifty five. I had uh, twenty thousand dollars in architectural fees to get a full set of drawings done. Geotechnical uh, engineering was five thousand bucks. Structural engineer cost me eight grand. I had a surveyor in there for about two thousand bucks. Paid a few thousand dollars in insurance. Add a couple more for legal taxes. Taxes were about two grand during that short hold. And when you held it and purchased it, yeah. was that with um, any leveraged capital? So it was interesting. When I initially bought the property, I used, I have a line of credit on my current house. Nice. And I used the line of credit. But after about a month, I looked at my accounts and had what else I had going, which wasn't much. And I said, you know, screw it. I just put my own capital into the deal, put, put the cr- line of credit money back. And so there's some opportunity costs maybe on missed interest, but I held it in cash. Nice. Well, that helps. Yeah. Anyway, all said and done, I was about 500 in after buying it and uh, sold the property to my site work and utility contractor guy I've known for a while. There were some intricate details as far as uh, supportive excavation that may be required or foundation work. This, this would need to be on uh, helical piles. And he does all that. I fear he does this for half of what I would pay. You <laughs> a know, third. A third. <laughs> At cost, we'll call cost. it. So yeah. he had a certain advantage there. There was no broker involved in the deal. He bought it from me for 600, cleared 100K 
in seven months. Sometimes quick cash is just as good as, you know, what, so let me ask you this, if, if you're willing to share, what would have a rough estimate uh, of the income have been if you had gone through the whole process? Because again, it's time value of money. And that's always a decision that, you know, an investor or developer is going to be making. For sure. So let's, let's break down the total development costs. The acquisition was four fifty five. If I had continued forth, I think my total soft costs, that would include in my world, uh, realtor fees, uh, architect, civil engineer, et cetera, uh, soft costs of 185000 My total development costs were $1,550,000. My projected sellout there was- That includes the acquisition. That does include the acquisition. I'd be into it for, for, for that 1550. Total sales would have been $1.9 and so the project would have made about 345, 350,000. Okay. So by taking 100 off the table, leaving my site guy to make a quarter million bucks, you know, I guess my feeling on it was that the second I started construction, my cost per hour would plummet as far as what I'm making on the deal. And, and there's some risk too. That's, that's the 1.9 is not guaranteed. Yeah. And you don't, know, you don't know what the market's going to be like in yeah. another year. So, but that, you know, it, cuts the other way, you know, it could, the market could continue to appreciate. Yep. I, yeah. That's always tough. To it is. Back. It is tough. Even that's, when not that, and that's not even, that's not a bad deal. No, no, it's not a bad deal. No, I mean, it left him. It's not a home run, but it's not. They're not huge numbers either. No. So, um, you know, let's also just be respective of our market, right? So it's, it's relative to our market. I mean, yeah. we know a lot of other listeners out there that may say, what the hell are these guys talking about? Couple hundred grand is amazing. It's it's yeah. it's all relative to where you live. I mean, seventy five k barely cuts it in the city of Boston. To we're a very a we're in a very unique situation compared to the rest of the country versus you know how much we can make on a potential. The three of us are unique, or you know, a little different too, because we GC our own projects, and that cuts both ways. To me, it, it, you know, my bandwidth is taken very quickly. So if I started building this, you know, my opportunity cost in terms of taking other projects is fairly high. Yeah. And I'd, I'd rather try to get something through that's well, that makes larger sense. scale. Now, so, so that's seven months though to, for everybody listening is not, that's like an aggressive, aggressive number. What, realistically, what do you think? Like 10 months for a zoning, zoning contingent deal between submitting and getting your actual building permit? Your actual building permit might be more like that 10-month mark, but I should think that within seven to nine months, you should be through Board of Appeals with the appeal period expired. Yeah. Um, so uh, It also depends if you're doing a teardown versus an alteration because there's a whole additional checklist for demo, if you're demoing something, or yeah. if you're building new, you've got to go through the water water company, but, uh, water and sewer. No, we're just talking about getting your building. But permit. your risk is yeah, but largely they... off the table once you're through, once you have your variances. To Correct. Me, it'd be great if I could, you know, not have to purchase the property until my building permit is in hand, but that's getting a little greedy. I thought they uh, require water and sewer plans to give you the final building permit. They do. Yeah, so you have yeah. to go through that whole process. But you're typically doing that while you're... Typically. I mean, we just... We just see people who are so busy that everybody's delay just starts to compound and pile on. And eventually there's gates that you have to pass and you have to have all your requisites checked off there. So anyway, 10 to 12 is probably so, right. So, so in certain municipalities, you're at risk until you have a building permit and it's been issued for 45 days. Boston is unique in that they view it as once you have that appeal approved and it's signed, I believe it's 21 days 20, later. 21. 
you're you're there's no more appeal period. You are good. But most municipalities are different. It's the building permit plus forty five days. So talk to your <laughs> attorney here. So so to sum everything up, average usually about ten months for zoning mm-hmm. contingent deals. Cost twenty grand. Twenty twenty grand. Twenty between architect and attorney and zoning attorney. Yeah, and and a surveyor. And site site stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's for a geotech. Two, geotech. Two, Two, three unit type building. Obviously, if you're going bigger, there's going to yeah. be bigger costs. Yeah. yeah. Almost you need like a cost per unit breakdown, or it, it's tough yeah. to figure out how that scales. No, so we, we call it risk capital, right? And if yeah. you're going to do what we do, I think you have to have a certain tolerance for putting those dollars out there because you have to go to the plate. If you're, if you're, if you're not going to, then just go do something else. So you, you sub let your stuff out like we do. You know, at what, at what point do you think you'll, not sub stuff out and and hire a GC. Even on that one, it's a good question because what if I paid a GC a hundred grand and that you know I left two hundred and fifty five grand on the table. If if I had just hired a GC for a hundred, I perhaps could have kept another hundred. So it is an interesting question. Is when do you start to say like, look, my time's worth more than uh, constantly sprinting to the Home Depot and back and forth from building department and bring someone on. So you yeah. have to look at what it would cost you versus how many more hours you have available in the day. Well, here's the other thing. Are you, are you talking more of a GC or are you talking more of a project manager? Because there's a difference. Right. I'm, I was thinking of more of a GC. Okay. So someone coming in and bringing their own crew in. Like yeah, all their own they, subs, they, subs. All their subs, they can control those. Does they they make you nervous? There. You lose control. A lot of control. A little bit, yeah. I mean, there's some really good GCs out there, certainly. But you also don't know what subs they're hiring. Yeah, I can influence some of that, but uh, <laughs> maybe a conversation for another dime on whether or not you know self-performing the general contracting or otherwise hiring out that service is. Yeah, I would say nothing move. is more frustrating than you're going to spend this big chunk of change getting a GC, but then you still have to make all these trips to essentially I won't say babysit, but to ensure quality and ensure you're always going to you're to always going to have to do that. I understand that. What I'm saying is. Again, just because you hire, I just want our listeners to know, just because you hire a GC doesn't mean you take your foot off the pedal and you sit in the back seat and you, and you, you only enjoy show the up train to the ride. job site every, you know, right. tw- every other week or something. Right. Yeah. You still have to be there to ensure quality and, and layouts. I mean, we, as frustrating as it is and as much detail as, as we pay attention to, we still have issues like, outlets that are off by a quarter inch or even we've seen an inch in the same room. And it's just like, what are they measuring from? It's just stuff like that that you you don't pay attention to some of those details until the finishes are in. And mm-hmm. I don't think a GC, let's just put it this way. You're never g- going to find somebody that will manage it exactly no the same as the as owner. No one cares as much as you do. The owner just, always just cares clear. more. No yeah. one ever will care no, as much they, as you It doesn't do. matter how good they are. So I almost I'm not would rather, GCs. I almost would rather hire a project manager than a GC because with a project manager, they can still make those trips to the Home Depot. They can still, we can still, I can still send them down to the building department. I can, they can go, they can be at the job site multiple times a day, accepting deliveries and whatnot, you know, and I don't know, do you pay them the same amount as a GC? What you would pay a GC no, it or it should be less? I mean, because you should be able to use them on more than one job. Too. Exactly. So you have the scale there as well. So I, I don't know. I, I, I would go both ways on it. I'd go both ways. It's, t- it's tough. You've also, I think Mark, you've referred to them as an OPM and owner's project manager. Is there any difference between PM and OPM? 
no, in your mind? No, I'm, okay. just, I'm using those for Sorry, I just wanted to ask you that. But then at what size project, are you required to hire a GC at a certain size project or no? Believe it or not, you're required. Yeah, the answer... Uh, you just have to have architectural you, you can oversight. Self- yes, so not only do you need architectural oversight, but at a certain point, the city would require that you hire a clerk of the works. So with your permit application, you must submit a resume for a qualified individual who's going to do all of the things that you just mentioned and more and look after the interests of the eventual owner and be there at you know signing a daily log, really that the building department is entitled to see to make sure that proper oversight has been provided. And what size project is that? It's considered like complex projects. So there's some <laughs> discretion, but I think that there is a dollar figure and I, I'd be making it up. It's So I guess number, we haven't hit that threshold. Yeah. They'll, they'll tell you before yeah, you get yeah. your permit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in your mind, what, what size project before you would hire GC? Nine units, 12 units, 20 units? I think after nine. After nine. Yeah. 10 or above. Yeah. You rarely build 10. Yeah, right? I, know. It's, so, I know. It's usually nine. It's an you, unspoken, jump to tw- you jump to 12 rule. after nine, right? This may change, but yeah, as, as currently uh, nine units or less, there's no affordable housing requirement. And so once you pass nine, you're sort of a fool to stop at 10. You kind of got to get to 15 to make it even worth, worth being in the middle. Mm. Makes sense. So, and, and the number of affordable units required is, or the percent. Isn't it 13? 13%. Yeah. And it rounds, so you can pay off if you're at 2.45. So if you have 19 units, that's a nice spot to be. I think that's 2.45 units. So therefore, you build two, and you buy off 0.45, and it goes into a fund. And what's the price? You know, it depends on where you're building in the city and the tier. Yeah. Interesting. We talked a little bit about self-performing the general contracting. And uh, so we have a lot of relationships with various subcontractors from our tile guy to our electrician, roofer, plumber, et cetera. So there's probably like two dozen subs you could have on a, even a three family. My contact list in my phone is like ridiculous. <laughs> I have like one friend for every 15 construction contacts. How do you organize <laughs> it? I have very few friends though. So <laughs> do, let's be do, clear about that. Do you put like Carpenter and then a name and I and use the nickname, and then nickname a name. field a lot. I always in the nickname field I'll put like how I know them. Be like Ray's recom- Ray's plumber or you know. I usually just put their first name in the first name and then their last name is like Framer or yeah. Plumber or Carpenter. I found that like when I send an email for whatever reason my phone takes like the that name and puts it in there. So if I send it from my computer, it's their email address. But if I send it on my phone, it's like oh you know. Joe Plummer, yeah, right, yeah. and I, I don't want him to think that like I don't know his last name. <laughs> so, but my most of the times like their I don't name in there. Yeah, <laughs> most of the times I don't know their last Thanks, name. Technology. <laughs> my phone ended up in the lake this this weekend. I have actually a brand new iPhone. Really today? Ooh. Yeah. Wait, Brutal. your phone wasn't IP rated or whatever? I, I can't believe it. it was supposed to be waterproof to six meters or whatever, but no, I came out of the water and it was fried. Wow. So um, salt? No, you said lake, not even salt lake. water. It wasn't salt water. Crazy. Did you try the rice thing? I try. I left it in rice overnight. Yeah, but you, you know what? Um, I think I thought it was waterproof, so I didn't turn it off. I immediately plugged it back into like the uh, stereo oh, on the gosh. boat and just started listening to music <laughs> just on it. Power into I, it. I just thought it was waterproof. <laughs> I, it's a I, bad, bad idea. A little nerd out there. I, yeah. I guess there's different ratings. It's like six, seven, and uh, six, Apple eight told me and quickly it's not wa- it's water resistant. Yeah, that uh, of course. So if it did. ends in a seven. Don't even put it in your water. Yeah. And if it ends in an eight, you can put it in water. But then if it's salt water, it's no good. And then they show these videos on Instagram, people dunking their phones in beer, then that voids the, the rating. So 
Keep it yeah. dry. Yeah. So be getting care, back be careful to careful this weekend. <laughs> so getting back to contractors, and my whole point was like managing the relationship. So I feel like, you know, we talk about contracts and it's all these penalty clauses and like, you know, everything that contractors can do to to piss you off. Not piss you off, but they, you know, they sometimes they act before they think or, or ask, right? And so we're here for them as much as they're here for us. Like we're not going to be successful if they're not successful and vice versa. So the goal is to work together as long as we can. But what happens if a contractor, you know, gets too big? I think we had our plumber at one point go into commercial, didn't do any residential jobs, but then came back. And, you know, is, is it the goal for us to, to it's, it's a team effort, right? So are we there to help them be I mean, as successful as we are? I think we are, right? The one notion that I just want to dispel is any idea that you own your subcontractor. I cannot nope. stand that mindset. If someone calls me and they say, need a recommendation for a roofer, I don't send them my B or C team. I'll give you my best guy and I'm more than happy to share. Because if, if they're successful, I'm successful. That's how the relationship works. One day I'll have enough work where I can keep those guys steady and employed you know, every day of the year. But until that time, you know, in a busy market, guys know who puts food on their table. And you can do that in two ways. You can have 15 projects going, or you can be the guy who helps their business and helps refer them out. And so when you have a roof leak one day, you know, it's, hey, can you come? Jump, you know, and it's that kind of, I help you, you help me, and the world works. I thought you were referring to, uh, you don't own the contractor, like they're independent contractors. And it's tough because we've had discussions with some subs about, you know, hours that you can work. And technically you can't tell them when to work, but you can agree upon how long a job will take. And it's up to them to figure out when they're going to do it. No, I'm, I'm talking, talking specifically about, like, about yeah, people you don't, who don't, who yeah, but you also said relationships. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to play devil's advocate here, but you also said, I don't have enough work to keep them busy. But what if you did? Right. And then yeah. somebody else sees who you're using and tagging on Instagram and they start grabbing them. I mean, that would probably mildly irritate you if it started affecting your projects. It would. If I, I guess if I had enough, maybe it'd be a different mindset. We're in that kind of situation, right? Where people have asked us for subs and I don't, where I, while I don't mind giving them out, but if, if I know if I have four projects going on and I'm using the same sub for all four projects and then I recommend the sub to somebody and then one of the, and then the sub comes back and says, well, I can't start your project for another three weeks because now I'm working on their job. I would get a little aggravated. Wouldn't you? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, sort of like babysitters. Do you give out your babysitters <laughs> uh, information to someone else who asks because then who watches your kid? On a Saturday night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's really tough. It's kind I of guess a fine line, too, right? coming out too hot on that. You yeah, know? No, no. like you got to think about it. Like if you're, I think it depends on how busy you are and how, I, don't know. I also think a bit, it depends on, on the scale of your subcontractor. Because yes. like I know that my plumber has like three or four crews that he can put on various jobs versus my tile guy can only do one job at a time. So the ability to scale if they have If I know my subcontractor know. can scale, I ha- I'll happily give out their name if you know, if I'm if I have a lot of jobs going on with that one sub. Well, I'll I'll come back. I'll say that I'm very confident that if my guy is tied up, I can go to the next horse in the stable. Like I have enough of a network and resources available that I can interview three more guys and fill that position. Right. So if someone's been really good to me, I think I still would continue to push their name out there. And if they grow to a point where they can't service my jobs or they're tied up on something else, so be it. You know, I mean, and I don't it, mind. It I, ta- better. I don't mind tagging. I mean, we tag yeah. people on Instagram all the time. I tag subs on Instagram every day. 
I do and, too. you know, it's the only thing I ask when if someone reaches out to the guy I tagged on Instagram is to like, you know, just say when you when you make the introduction, like, hey Ray, uh, you know, I'm calling because I saw on Choose Boston's site that you did his roof at Jeffrey Street. It's like give that give a little bit of credit back. But um, you don't you don't know if they'll do that. No, you don't. It's a kind of I mean, a, it's nice if I can make the introduction, but if short of that, just say yeah. I saw you on HRVs and Well, yeah. you find out if they start if you have a sub where they post as well, then all of a sudden you see them on the other person's job. You can find out. We actually had a plumber and HVAC contractor. They did both. And Dan, I believe you met with them. And I think the right thing to do is, I think it's, if I can, if I can have an ideal world as a con, as a subcontractor, you know, work the relationships that you have because those are the ones that are feeding you. But if you are lucky enough to get more referrals to other developers or, or, or whatnot, then, you know, be respectful of everybody's time. So we, Dan, you met a, a plumber and HVAC guy and they came out and looked at a couple jobs, but they said that they were, you know, they were frankly going to be too busy. So they also were self-aware to know that, Hey, this might be too much and we don't want to take on the work. Then everybody suffers because that sucks too. Then, then nobody's happy because you've got the current, the current clientele pissed off and you've got future people not getting a good first impression. Or they so, just didn't like me. I think there's a certain price that's built in a discount rather for, for, for someone, for a customer who is constantly trying to promote and help, help them grow their business. I think, uh, I mean, in one case, I literally built one of my subs, a guy who's been great to me over the years, incredible with a pouch on his hip, but isn't that good at the paperwork. I built him a website. Uh, I made a Facebook page for him and I had those. What trade is printed. He's a, he's a carpenter. Carpenter. Nice. Yeah. It's got four guys with him. And, uh, and what's your, what's... that took me a half a day and that was something, I don't know that he would have been able to figure out and it's, it's helped our relationship so much. And, and that's an easy thing. So I look for easy things that I can do. How many subs do you find through referrals versus like social media? It's all referrals. Would you only do referrals? I feel much better about hiring a sub if there's a source of accountability. If I can say, hey, you know, Dan and Ray recommended you to me and you're not showing up on my job. They know that not only will they lose my future work, but Dan and Ray are going to get a call to say. Have you ever used um, like a social, not a social networking site, but what, I think it's called Alignable. That's almost like a referral network or uh, what was that other association, like trade associations that we went to? In the early days, I used Craigslist, Angie's List. I paid for Angie's oh, List Angie's subscription. List. Yeah, once. we did that. I, you know, it's we're sort of privileged at this point where we have a pretty good network of friends that we can call and say like, hey, my, my, my plumber just got too big for me here. Who do I? It is hard at the beginning, it especially is. in this market where everything is so competitive and there's people are so busy. I, I, I don't. I'd Guys, got to take you seriously too. So, if they're going to come and walk your job with you and spend the time to price it out, they have to know that you're the real deal as well. So that's another place where that referral helps. It's not just me trusting them; it's also me saying, "Hey, I'm I'm really good friends with Dan and Ray," and having you call them and be like, "Oh, Savatsky's legit." So as so a, he'll he'll come and price it. So as a newbie, though, if this is my first job or something, how, like what? I guess if you're the first job, then you're not you're going to be hiring a GC. You're not going to be subbing stuff out. But at the same time, you got to qualify the GC. You got to find the GC somewhere. Yeah. So that's true too. You know, how do you even start that process in today's day and age? Like I, I, I'd be overwhelmed if I was. I think you got to interview a couple guys. GCs. Yeah. Looking back, I would. 
oh man, remember that time we, we took this one guy out to dinner? I know he was more of a framer than a GC, but we like went to dinner with this one guy and had this like really fun relationship with him. It was the framer over in Dorchester, the one where we had to like change framers three times. I mean, the other thing you do is you but just you, drive around, you walk around. Yeah. When I moved to East Boston, I used to go for the longest walks and I would just take pictures of every truck that I passed on construction sites. I still do and that. I, yeah, I love that move. I, and, I, uh, I have to get organized though. I have dozens of pictures of just people's the, trucks. <laughs> the real trick is to um, to walk the neighborhood where your project is and do it off hours because when you know that that painter or that electrician lives in that neighborhood in that block, man, it's nothing's more convenient than rolling out of bed and walking a block and a half to the project. So that's built into the price. I think as a as a more green developer, if I were to do it again, I would not be as intimidated talking to a contractor or at least feeling intimidated. I mean, I won't try and show it at all. I will try and be confident. You have to have that. But I won't just say yes to the first person that impresses me with a couple terms. In fact, I do the complete opposite. I would not push back or anything and be a, a, a jerk, but I would interview a few people just to see what all their different opinions are and to see the different personalities and professionalisms. Oh, yeah. You learn something every time you talk to a guy about a job. One of my favorite questions to ask after a guy's had a chance to digest my plans is, is there anything about this project that keeps you up at night? And you say, all of a sudden he goes, oh uh, yeah, you know, the coordination is going to be really tricky, man. You got a lot of steel in this building and you're going to have a hell of a ton of soffits unless we figure out some beam penetrations and a way early on. And I'm like, whoa, didn't, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. When they actually, I think that's what impresses us sometimes is you send the plans out and they actually review them and have questions. Mm. That's when we can tell you're dealing with somebody that's a little more professional. Yeah. Let's grab a future episode and do a little bit more about like self-performing the GC work and what that responsibility entails and how to do it well. Yeah, I think you. I think we could definitely do an episode on that. Okay, guys, I think we could probably talk here for a few more hours, but in the interest of fairness, let's wrap this thing up. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Um, we do appreciate the shares and the feedback. You? Yeah, if there's any other topics you want us to kind of dive in like this too just let us know shout out and uh keep pushing the, yeah, don't the hesitate Guys, to reach out thank you for sharing the podcast we appreciate it gotten so many great dms and feedback so thank you for continuing uh your help and promoting the pod and uh let's keep it going take care guys later yeah. cheers <laughs>